Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 4. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is God's word. It's true. And it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Kelly. Um, I love that story uh, that Kelly just read there from uh, Dagon and the Philistines in the Old Testament. The reason it's so hilarious is because in the, in the ancient world, the uh, ancients thought of deities or gods as being territorial. And so you had a specific god for your specific area. And then if you won or lost in a military battle, it was a sign that your god was either stronger or weaker than the god of the army that you were fighting against. And so the Philistines do what every ancient people group would have done. They assume that the reason that they beat the Israelites was because their god Dagon was more powerful than Yahweh, the god of the Israelites. And so as they bring uh, the the Ark of the Covenant, you know, we've all seen Indiana Jones, uh, so we know what the Ark of the Covenant looks like, uh, but they bring that into their temple, and that's the first of two movie references, so keep an eye out for the second one, but the, uh, they bring the, temple, the uh, Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon, and they try to set up the God of Israel as like a sub-deity or like a member of the consort of uh, uh, Dagon in his temple, and so they're thinking, we're, things are going really well for our God. They wake up the next morning, and their God has fallen face down, bowing before uh, Yahweh, uh, in the, his, the presence of Yahweh in the Ark of the Covenant. And so what, what the main purpose of that story is this, it's this clear picture that, that the God of the Bible, the God that created heaven and earth, he is more powerful than any other God that exists. That's the main, that's the main point there. The fun thing about that though, also though, is to see how far other people, other idolaters, other people who worship other gods will go to prop up their gods. Okay. Like, like the, the, the author of first Samuel is trying to show you how foolish you must have felt if you were one of those Philistines going to stand your God back up the next morning. Can you imagine that making that phone call? You're like, hey guys, I need you to grab some rope and a pulley and a bunch of dudes. Uh, our God has fallen and he can't get up. So we got to go stand him up this morning. And then for the next day, for the same thing to happen, be like, yeah, it happened again. Bring some glue this time because we got some repairs to do on our deity, right? And so it's, he's trying to make, uh, show how foolish it must have been to be the Philistines protecting their God or fixing their God, repairing their God trying to save their God. Okay, and, and the foolishness that we see exhibited by the Philistines, it's supposed to, when you read scriptures like this, it's supposed to convict us and remind us of how we are those same fools so often. Right? We are more alike than unlike the Philistines. Like, do, do you have anything in your life right now that you feel like it falls over and it, it, it totally frustrates you and you're the one propping it up by your own strength? Do, do, do you ever feel 
um, angry or anxious or depressed, toiling, trying to get something in your life to work the way that you want it to and it's not working and it feels like you're being crushed under the weight of that. Okay, th- that principle is what the Bible talks about as idols or idolatry. And what we're going to see this morning is that we are all like the Philistines. We all struggle with that idolatry. And so this morning, we're actually going to be studying in the book of Acts. We're continuing that story. And we get this really uh, funny picture, this really convicting picture of a group of people from the city of Ephesus who are fighting to save their God. They are worried about their God's safety and they are fighting in order to save their God. And the question that we're going to ask of these Ephesians and the question we want to ask of ourselves is, is if your God needs saving, what makes you think it would ever be able to save you? Right? If you need to save and rescue your God, then why would you think it could ever rescue you? And as, again, as we, I guess as we study this passage, we're going to see that there's a lot of stuff in here for us, whether or not we worship a God made of stone or gold or anything like that. So I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to study Acts chapter 19 together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your presence with us here this morning. I thank you for the fact that uh, we, we can see ourselves reflected in so many of these stories in Scripture. Uh, as we see our own foolishness, as we see the temptation that we have to run to things other than you, I pray that we would feel the conviction that comes from knowing that we are in need of a Savior, but I also pray that we would feel the comfort that comes from knowing that you have uh, become that Savior for us. You have given of yourself so that we can find our identity in you. And so I pray that as we we study this passage, you would make these words more than words on a page that we might be able to leave here more in love with you than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 19, beginning verse 21 today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible on the table Bibles, it's page 928 is where we will pick up. And so just some context, if you haven't been here for the rest of this series, uh, we're we're progressing verse by verse through the whole book of Acts. And so what's happening now is Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, we're all familiar with him. He He is completing what is known as his third missionary journey. So he is wrapping up this trip. He spent uh, about three years in the city of Corinth. He spent about two years in the city of Ephesus, and he's getting ready to head back to Jerusalem to bring an offering for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. So we'll pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so what we're doing here, these two verses are just setting the table for what's going to happen next in the story. But in these two verses, we see a reminder of Paul's calling. Okay, Paul had a unique calling, a unique vocation. If you were going to summarize what Paul was called to do, it was to travel the Roman Empire, going from influential city to influential city, planting churches, preaching the gospel, seeing people come to know Jesus as their Savior. And so Paul is being faithful to live out that calling and he knows that after he has finished this plant in Ephesus he wants to make it to Rome to see the gospel planted in the the most influential city in the ancient world and I love the thing that we see here it says that he resolved in the spirit okay so so this is Paul's vocation or this is Paul's calling we can ask ourselves is this something that he has decided to do or is this something that he was led by God to do and what we see in that that picture of being resolved in the spirit is that the answer is yes Okay, Paul is making this decision. He has the resolve to be faithful to his calling, but it's the Holy Spirit inside of him that is leading him to this place. And so as we've been studying through the book of Acts, I try to take every instance I can to point out the fact that if you are a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. 
There there is nothing else you need. The Spirit already resides in you. And the reason I keep harping on that is because that's what tells us that we can have that same resolve in our vocations that Paul had because we have that same Spirit dwelling in us and we can have that same resilient faithfulness to the unique calling that God has placed on us. Okay, so, so each of us has a vocation. And the word vocation is the Latin word for calling. Okay, no matter whether your vocation is something that you personally get life from or not, your job, whether it's uh, at home or in the marketplace or, or something else that's going on with your vocation, that is a unique calling that God has placed on you in order for you to minister to people around you and to serve him and his kingdom. Remember last week we were talking about God works in you so that he can work through you. Okay, and I actually had a friend lovingly point out this week that that's probably not the best way to phrase that because that makes it sound like God works in you so that you can be a tool in his machine and go be a cog in this machine to go do something for him. And that's not what I'm trying to communicate at all. Okay, what, it, what it is, the reason God works in you is because he loves you and he desperately wants what's best for you. He wants you to fulfill the calling that he has put on your life where you will find life and joy in the presence of his son. Okay, so God's love for you working in you, that then overflows through you and you can't help but serve and love other people around you because God's work in you is overflowing uh, through you. And that's what it means for God's work in you to work through you. Okay, again, the principle here, though, that we're seeing is that we each have a vocation. We each have a calling. The author, uh, Frederick Beekner puts it this way. He says, the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That's such a poetic way to describe what it means to, to discern God's calling on your life. It's where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, and you can serve people and build the kingdom by leaning into your vocation. Like I said, that's whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you own your own business, whether you work a nine-to-five for someone else, that calling, that vocation that you have is something that you get the chance to honor God through your vocation, just like Paul honored God through his vocation of planting churches. So I, I wanted to, there's a, a short prayer here I want to read over us that we're going to hopefully send out this week in our weekly prayer email. And it's, this, it's a blessing over your vocation that John Calvin wrote centuries ago. Okay, and, and I love the way that this reframes whatever our job is in light of the gospel, in light of the presence of God. Because a lot of times I think as Christians we have our faith and we have our jobs and those two don't intermingle as much as they should. And so no matter what your nine to five is, I would encourage you to pray this prayer before you go to work in the morning. It says, my good God, Father and Savior, Grant me aid by your Holy Spirit to now work fruitfully in my vocation, which is from you, all in order to love you and the people around me rather than for my own gain and glory. Give me wisdom, judgment, and prudence and freedom from my besetting sins. Bring me under the rule of true humility. Let me accept with patience whatever amount of fruitfulness or difficulty in my work that you give me this day. And in all I do, help me to rest always in my Lord Jesus Christ and in his grace alone for my salvation and life. Hear me, merciful Father, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful uh, a prayer of blessing over your job? I think, I think if we approach our work with that mindset, it will change a lot of the things that feel frustrating in our day-to-day existence. And so that frustration, a lot of times, like, you can hear that quote about your calling is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, and you're like, but I hate my job, <laughs> right? I, I feel so much difficulty at my work. I'm not sure that my job is the calling that God has for me. And, and a clarification that we see in Scripture is just because God calls you somewhere doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Okay, difficulty in your vocation will more often than not go hand in hand. And that's actually what we see from the Apostle Paul's life. 
Okay, so, so we studied the book of 1 Corinthians a few years ago, and Paul wrote the letter to Corinth, known as 1 Corinthians, while he was in Ephesus, in this exact moment that we're reading about today. And listen how Paul describes this place where he's writing this letter from in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Isn't that funny how we think God opens doors? It means there's no adversaries. The reason Paul, Paul says, I am confident God has me here is because there's many people opposing me. Okay, what, what a completely backwards way of looking at it compared to how most of us do look at our vocations. Uh, okay, so, so that, that's, this is all kind of just the setup, right? Paul is being faithful to his vocation. He's living out his calling. And so the remainder of the chapter, we're going to see what an effective work looks like and what the adversaries he's talking about are able to bring to his ministry in Ephesus. So let's keep going in verse 23. This is where things start to pick up. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way is just the way that uh, Luke refers to Christianity and the followers of Christ. It says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Okay, so, so Demetrius is what we would call a union boss or a union leader in the ancient world. He heads up the silversmiths that make these little tiny statues of the goddess Artemis. And uh, the temple of Artemis is one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the, at the time, it was the largest building in existence on the face of the earth. It was this massive temple. And so what Demetrius is saying, he's correctly looking around at their business and saying, hey guys, if you look at our profit and loss sheets here, we're losing some business. And the reason we're losing business is this guy, Paul, keeps preaching the gospel and people are starting to believe that the gods we make with our hands are no gods at all. And if we're not careful, our business is going to completely collapse as well as this awesome temple that we try to go worship Artemis at. Okay, and so what I love seeing here is the way that the gospel brings disruption to the city of Ephesus. This is very similar to what we saw in chapter 17 where some opponents of Paul said, hey, Paul, this is the guy who's turning the whole world upside down by this gospel message. And I think the thing that we see with that is that anywhere there is a genuine gospel presentation, it brings disruption to the status quo in society. Okay, when the gospel transforms hearts, power structures suddenly change. Business practices have to change. The way we view our sexuality and identity has to change. All of these things change because when the gospel comes into a place, it brings disruption. Okay, that's why I love that phrase, there was no little disturbance caused by the followers of Christ. What a beautiful job description for all of us is to ask ourselves, are we causing a gospel disturbance in our city? Right? There's this passage in Jeremiah that's become very popular that says uh, God tells the Israelites to pray or to seek the welfare of the city. It's a beautiful uh, biblical concept. I think what we're seeing here is kind of the exact opposite. It says as Christians, we should seek the disruption of our city. If the gospel is going to change hearts, it's going to have to change social structures as well. And that's what Demetrius is identifying. But the interesting thing is uh, the disruption is not coming the way that we would script it if we were going to start a revolution. 
right? There, there, there's no armies. There, 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 there's no uh, recruiting for a revolution. There's, there's no uh, soldiers or power structures or anything like that. The reason Demetrius' business is tanking is because one heart at a time is giving up this idolatry of worshiping Artemis and is instead going to worship Jesus as the resurrected king. Okay, it's that one heart transformation at a time is where that gospel disruption comes from. It doesn't come from, from gigantic social movements. It doesn't come from, from gaining power and influence. It comes from a single heart at a time being transformed and turning from idolatry to worshiping Jesus. So, so the question we want to keep asking ourselves is as you look at our lives, as you look at our church, as you look at our city, where is the disruption coming from? Are we causing a little disturbance in any way? And again, the convicting thing is I think sometimes we're like, we're not causing a disturbance because you, you can only make a disturbance if there is a genuine difference in your heart. And I think for many of us, we have given up gospel transformation and we have instead given in to cultural acclamation. We look more like the world than like the church. And because of that, we're never going to cause the disturbance that Paul caused here. And, and here's the, where we're getting to the theme of the whole passage. The reason that is a temptation for me and that temptation for all of us is that we are no different than Demetrius. Okay, at our hearts, we are all idolaters. We all have idols that we want to worship. John Calvin, the guy who wrote the prayer we just read, he said in his, um, one of his commentaries that the human heart is a factory of idols. Okay, my heart produces idols in the exact same rate and way that Demetrius and his craftsmen would produce idols. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, puts it this way, and he's written a ton of stuff on idols. It's, it's really helpful uh, content if you're looking for a good book to read. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I will feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Again, so, so we are all Demetrius. We don't worship Artemis. Okay, Artemis was the, the goddess of fertility in the Greek pantheon of gods. But we have our own gods, our own things that our hearts look to and say, if I only had that, then my life would count for something. And so it's going to be different for each of us. Like, but if you, in your mind, like, just do like a little thought experiment with me. Picture what you think of as the good life. That if you only had those things, then your life would be good. I think if you evaluate our society, there's actually some similarities in a lot of our idols here in Falcon in particular. They, they seem to always revolve around community, comfort, career, and kids. And man, I wish you spelled kids with a C because then that alliteration would be four for four and that would really be a, a powerful point then. But if you think about like community, like we all want to have a group of friends that just pours life into us and we, and we can say that we, we know we matter because they affirm us. Okay, our, our comfort, we want, we want to have a house that's fantastic, that we can have people over that they're impressed with how great it looks. It looks like Joanna Gaines would be jealous of how much decorating we've done in our home. We want to have the vacations that give us life and joy. We all want to have the career where we're, we're leaving this awesome home in the morning to go off to our awesome workplace where people look up to us and respect us and we make a difference and they tell us how great of a job we're doing. And we all want to have these kids that are, that are model citizens that are winning all of their sports activities, that are getting the best grades, that they're succeeding in life and they reflect on how great we are as they grow and mature. All of those things, when you look at that, you put that together and you say, that's a picture of what the good life is. And that's what we end up pursuing with all of our effort. And when you, you pull back, you say, that is no different than the goddess of Artemis for the Ephesians. It's something I'm looking to saying, if I only had that, then I would be successful. Here, here's another Tim Keller quote. He says that we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. 
the greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Right, because it's, it's good to have community. Like, it's good to have career vocation. We just talked about that. It's good to have kids. It's good to pursue comfort and those things. Those are just, those things together make a lousy savior. Okay, they make a lousy God. If we look to that for our identity, we'll find that we're in the exact same place as Demetrius. Because notice, I love how hilarious Demetrius is in saying this. He's like, listen, people are going to figure out that if I make a God by my hands, it's really no God at all. And you're kind of step back and you're like, uh, duh. Like if I can make something with my hands, why would I ever think it's worthy of my worship? This is something that the prophet Isaiah speaks to in Isaiah 44. It's a really funny passage as well, where he says, this guy cuts down a tree and with part of the log, he builds a house. With part of a log, he starts a fire. And with the other part of the log, he makes a God and worships it. He's saying like all of these idols are things that we have crafted with our own hands. And the question that we want to ask Demetrius and the question we need to ask ourselves is if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Because that's what Demetrius is about to do. His God is being threatened. So he is going to come to his God's rescue and figure out how he can save it. But if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? So, so here's where the story goes next. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to try to save your God. Look at verse 28 and following. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, or the the leaders of the city, who were his friends, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out in one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This this is a a wonderful picture of what a mob looks like, particularly a mob in the ancient world. If they could find Paul, they were going to kill him. They they were were, uh, being rough with his friends. Uh, This Jewish guy, Alexander, stands up to try to say that he's not associated with Paul, that the Jewish community is different from the Christian community, but they recognize he's not an Ephesian. So they shout him down for two hours chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine the adrenaline and the intensity of a mob of that? And what we know from um, archaeology is we actually have a picture of the amphitheater where this would have taken place in Ephesus, and it seats 25,000 people. So there's 25,000 angry Ephesians chanting how great their God is, and most of the people there don't even know why they've come. Right? That's how mob mentalities work. We get swept up in something and we become less human and more like animals because of how the pressure of the mob is pushing us. I think the best illustration I've heard of that whole mob mentality actually comes from a story of a shepherd. Uh, this is, is about 10 years ago in Turkey. There was a, a flock. I've, I've used this story before because it's so great. There's a flock of about 1,500 sheep that one by one started to walk off a cliff. And then all 1,500 sheep walked off this cliff because that's what the rest of the mob was doing. The funny part is only 450 of the sheep died because eventually the pile of fluffy dead sheep bodies got high enough that it saved the rest of the mob right behind it. 
Okay, and so like, but we laugh at the Ephesians, we laugh at the sheep, but the picture that Luke is showing us here is that we all have that mob mentality. Okay, we all can give in to that confusion. If, if you look around our society this last few years, how many riots did we witness as a culture? Okay, like whether it's race riots or invading the Capitol building or whatever it was, we have this base desire that if something we care about is threatened, we get enraged and we're willing to do whatever we can to defend it. Okay, that's that mob mentality that we have that each of us has, which is really trying to defend the deities that we're going to. Okay, and so that their, their slogan is, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, but each of our idols has slogans that we chant as well, just in a little more subtle ways. So like if, if your idol is community, what's the slogan of that? It's, you got to find your people. Like, come on, go, go find your people. You have some people out there. You can find a good community to give you life and support. If your idol is um, your comfort, like the slogan is, if it feels good, do it. Right? That's what our society would chant with the idol of comfort. Or if your idol is your kids, the slogan is family first. Right? Doesn't that sound so appealing? Family first. And we might just be coddling the idol that we have. If your idol is your career, we can talk about you know, climbing the social ladder or, 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 or climbing the career ladder, giving, uh, uh, bringing home the bacon. Or um, like the Joker says in The Dark Knight, if you're, if you're good at something, never do it for free. Right? We, all of these idols have different slogans that, uh, that reflect what it means to find our identity in them. And so like I've been saying, we're more like Demetrius and the Ephesians than unlike them. We all have these idols that we run to that we say, if I live the good life, then I will be okay. But I love about this passage is it shows us how to discern what your idol is. I guess all these things I'm listing are just examples, right? It might be something completely different for you. But how you can figure out what your idol is is to do the same thing that the Ephesians did here, is trace the roots of what makes you angry. Notice that when their idol is threatened, their result, the way that they respond is being enraged and doing whatever they can to defend their idol, right? So, so what are the things that make you angry? What are the things that bring anxiety to your heart? What are the things that push you into despair? Again, so, so, so grab that picture in your mind again, that perfect life, the good scenario that you're trying to do so that you know your life will be good if you have these things. What happens when one of those things doesn't fall into place? What happens if your job is unfulfilling? What happens if your vacation gets canceled? What happens if your house is a mess? What happens if your kids are misbehaving? What happens if all these scenarios, there is something that, that when we encounter it in our life, our first reaction in our heart is either to be angry or to give in to despair. And what that means, when we are angry in those moments, what we're doing is the same thing that Demetrius is doing. We're trying to come to the rescue of our idol. We're trying to save our God. And if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Again, the, uh, Keller here has a, a wonderful way of putting this. He says, there is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources for you to turn to. It breaks your spirits. Okay, and that broken spirit comes out, like I said, either in anxiety and depression, or for most of us, it comes out in anger. Uh, the despair pushes us over into anger. And I think as I've been studying for this passage this week, I continue to get confronted with how much I need to hear this message. How often I try to save my God and I need to remember that if I'm saving this thing I'm worshiping, why would I think it could ever save me? This last 
we had the chance to, I go golfing like twice a year, and last weekend was one of those times I got to go golfing. Really weird scenario took place where the GM of the golf course uh, came up and was yelling at us and took our golf cart keys, and I'm like, I think we're going to have to fight this guy right now. He's really angry. Uh, and I was with uh, a guy on the SWAT team and an Army Special Forces guy, so I figured they're probably looking to me for protection and safety, so I should probably... <laughs> That's usually what cops and soldiers do is they look to, to pastors to keep them safe. So, so I was like, I better be the guy to step up here. And I wish I could say that I handled myself well, but I lost it on this guy. Like I totally blew my temper. And as I'm evaluating that in light of this passage, uh, the Ephesians being enraged, I'm asking myself, why did I get so angry? Like no one else that was there with us was as angry as I was. Why did I get so angry? And it's because there is something in that guy coming at me that is threatening an idol I have in my heart that I'm saying this is who I am. He's attacking my integrity. And if, if my idol of integrity is being attacked, then I have to get angry and defend it. Okay, like as, as we evaluate all of our weeks, I think we all could say that there's something this past week or this past month has happened where you're like, where did that anxiety come from? Where did that anger come from? Why, why am I so depressed and discouraged over this thing that seems so small? Right? But, but if you evaluate and look at that at a deeper level, what you're going to see is that you're trying to save your God. And, and if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? So, so with this, the, the riot resolves here. Let's look at verse 35 and see how some calm is restored to the city of Ephesus. It says, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Uh, they, they, their temple was based off the statue of Artemis that was a meteorite that fell out of the sky that they said was Artemis throwing down an image of what she looked like. Uh, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And just like that, after, after two hours of chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, they're probably exhausted and depleted. And so they're like, okay, I guess it's time to go home. And so th- th- this, this uh, town clerk, this leader, this politician, the interesting thing is he's able to bring calm to the crowd, but you don't have to be you know, a psychologist to read into what he's saying and say he's probably got some idolatry he's protecting too. Right. What is he worried about? He's worried that if this riot keeps going, that the Romans are going to take away the authority that he has as the city leader. Okay? And that's the thing about idols is they always end up competing and being confronted with one another. And so a lot of times the reason we get into tense arguments and fights with each other is that my idol is being threatened by your idol, and so we have to duke it out and figure out whose God is going to win. We're trying to save our God. And again, if you have to save your God, what makes us think it could ever save us? So the tragic thing here as you evaluate this is there is this this moment of commotion and disturbance. The gospel had caused a disturbance in the city of Ephesus. Demetrius was right to realize that his God was being threatened. And the tragedy is that this politician was able to bring things back to the status quo. Okay, they found a sense of equilibrium again. And I think that's when we realize that we have a spiritual enemy. That's what the enemy wants to bring. 
Okay, the disruption, the anxiety, the tension that we feel, those are the kind of crisis moments that God works in to show us how we need more of him and less of these false gods. And what the enemy wants to do is get rid of that anxiety and bring the status quo. He wants you to be, be lulled into sleep thinking, yeah, my job is good. I can find fulfillment in my career. Or to think, yeah, my kids are pretty awesome. I should give my life making sure that they reflect well on me. Or, or, yeah, comfort is a good thing. That vacation will actually make me happy. And the enemy lulls us to sleep with that, and a moment of crisis passes. And I think it was Winston Churchill that said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And he's not talking about our spiritual development, but I think it's a great way to apply that. When you feel that sense of anxiety, this upcoming week, as you get angry about something, as you feel a sense of despair, don't let that crisis go to waste. Instead, say, what is happening below the surface here? Why am I so angry? What is it that I'm trying to save in my life? Okay, and and just if we're honest with one another, this is something that we all need to learn from. Okay, I feel like unlike, I mean, more so than most of the times I'm up here, this message is so convicting to me personally. Like, I, I'm literally, here's a little peek into my morning. I'm on a walk with this passage, practicing this sermon, and I am mad as heck about some email that I got a few days ago. And, and, and what, it, what I'm angry about is that my idol, is, is my approval, my identity as, as who I am is being threatened. And so I'm literally practicing this sermon that says, if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could save you? And I'm like, boy, I really need to hear that this morning. Okay, and it's hard, right? When we talk about these things, it's easy to be like, yeah, don't go to idols, go to Jesus. And we all believe that that's true if you're a follower of Christ, but then the moment happens and the anxiety comes up and we find ourselves right back in the same place as we were before. So what are we to do? How can we, how can we deal with this? I think there's lots of ways that God's word shows us how Jesus is better than our idols, and if that's the case, we run to Jesus instead of the idols. One factor here I think that can be helpful is, is not only tracing the root of our anxiety, but then take it a step further and trace the root of what is it that our hearts are really longing for. Okay, what is the good thing behind the idol that is why I'm wanting that thing to ultimately fulfill me? And often what we're going to find, every time, what we're going to find is that what's behind that desire is something good that God has placed in us that's supposed to reflect the glory of him. In, in Ecclesiastes 3, this is in the Old Testament, Solomon says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Okay, that, that, that longing for eternity, that longing for something bigger than us is at the core of every idol that we run to. So St. Augustine says that, that our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Because God has made us for himself, we will always be restless until they rest in who God is. So, so as we trace that anxiety, don't stop there and just be like, that's an idol, bad. Stop pursuing the idol, right? Instead, take it a step further and say, what is the eternal attribute of God that my heart is really longing for? And how does Jesus, the one who brings that to me? Okay, if, if my idol is family, we need to take a step back and say, no, what God has created me for is relationship, relationship chiefly with him, and then from that identity in him, it flows out to my other relationships. If my idol is career, you say, no, God has created me with a purpose, a vocation, a calling, and I need to use that calling to serve him rather than make it a God that is trying, I'm trying to save myself. With all of those idols, there's those things that we can do. And at the end of the day, what happens that makes us realize this is true is keeping that eternal perspective in mind. 
Remember that idea from Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into our hearts. And so ask yourself, will this thing endure through eternity or not? And I think the reason this is helpful is because we have another picture from the city of Ephesus that we can show you. And what what this one is, that is the temple ruins of Artemis, the god of the Ephesians, right? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the most magnificent building at the time. The reason the clerk was able to quiet the crowd is he's like pointing at the temple saying, no one can deny how great Artemis is. Look at her temple. And now we can look at that and be like, yeah, no one can deny how great Artemis is. Look at her temple, right? That's the thing that idols will always produce. They will never last. If I, if I run to something besides Jesus, I will need to save it because it won't be strong enough to save me. But if you run to Jesus, Jesus is the God who all of that is reversed. He's the one who gave of himself to save us. He didn't come to be served. He wasn't like a Greek God who needed sacrifices and offerings in order to placate his anger. He came to be the sacrifice, to die in our place for all the idolatry that we struggle with. Jesus took that sin on his shoulders when he gave himself up for us so that we can be uh, home with him and find our identity in him. Every other God that we worship will need saving at some point. Jesus is the only one strong enough to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the way that you are so wonderful and powerful and strong. Uh, We confess that we are tempted to run to many other things. Our hearts produce idols day after day, and we think that they will satisfy us. But Lord, show us through the power of your Holy Spirit how you alone are the one that can um, give, satisfy all the longings and the desires that we have. As we go to these discussion tables, God, I pray that you would, you would use these conversations to stir our affections for you, that our hearts might long for more of you in our lives as we go from here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Well, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. The reason we sit at tables is so that after we study a passage together, we can turn inward, we can talk to one another, we can process what God is doing in our hearts. Um, Some of these questions uh, ask us to be a little vulnerable. Know that this is a safe place. Nothing you share is going to make anyone look down on you or think any less of you. At the same time, you're, you're comfortable, you're free to share as much as you are comfortable sharing. So the first question we have is, what is your vocation? And how does viewing it as a calling from God for ministry tangibly change your actions, right? If God has called you to be a stay-at-home mom, how does God's calling on your life change the way you view that day-to-day, those kinds of things? Secondly, when are you most likely to become angry, anxious, or give in to despair? What might that show you about what your heart worships and, and how is Jesus better than that? And then the last question we have is what would gospel disruption in our city look like? What cultural idols would be challenged? How would we know that the gospel is what's causing the disruption? Again, if we're going to see our city disturbed, the welfare of our city challenged by the gospel, what would that tangibly look like here in Falcon or Peyton or Colorado Springs? So we'll do that for 10 minutes, and then we'll wrap up with the time of worship. It's great to see everybody fellowship, and especially on a topic like this where we're wrestling with so many things at our table. We're Everybody's kind of coming from a different point of view of where their struggle is, where their, because our vocations are all so different, and we have, is that me? Have so many different um, things going on in our lives, and I was uh, challenged through this about, I had a conversation um, recently with 
a young lady that was going through a big change in her life, and she had a lot of apprehension about it, and it had to do with a physical characteristic in her, and I just reassured her that God knew her before she was even conceived. And that was her particular idol, I think, but I think we all have those different idols, and it just let me see into the heart of a young lady uh, how painful it can be at times, too. Uh, when we're at work and people are maybe attacking us for our faith or we fail by not standing up the way we should. Um, but as we turn to communion, I was thinking about that quote from John Calvin, that part where he said in there, And in all I do, help me to rest always in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I, fe- I felt like I circled the word rest because doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go sleep. It means I take confidence in the assurance of who my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. And it also puts in perspective what my idol is. If that's where my rest is, is at the foot of the cross, rather than wherever my idol was, I take better rest. I take more confidence. I come ready, prepared um, to face what I've got to face. Uh, the other verse that came to my mind when, through this was Romans 12. Um, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I feel like that's what communion uh, can be about. It's about us coming to the cross, the foot of Jesus, and saying, renew my mind. I came in here, my mind needs to be renewed from all the things that have gone on this week. And the foot of the cross is where we do that. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come to the table. There's three tables around the room. Um, It's a time to really remember why we're here, what this is all about. That it's not about holding up a gold cross in the middle of the room and bowing down to it. It's the connection we have to the Savior that shed his blood, his body was broken for. And we say thank you. We say we love you. Jesus, we love you. So if you'd stand with me over the next couple of songs, if you would uh, partake with us, just I pray that this would be a time that you can connect and rest in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on our lives, on who you are, the priorities of where maybe we're getting things out of whack. And I just pray, Lord, for each person in this room that they would remember that you knew them before they were conceived, that you loved them so much that you came to die for them on the cross. So, Father, receive our praise and our worship. We thank you in Jesus' name.